Hello and welcome to Recovery 360, the podcast dedicated to exploring the pathways to treatment and recovery. Brought to you by Recovery Centers of America. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill, Director of News and Community Affairs for iHeartMedia Philadelphia, and I am joined by the fabulous Tony Luke Jr. Hey, Tony. Hello, Lorraine. How are you? I am doing great. We're continuing this journey together on talking about recovery. Yes, which is a very important issue today more than it's ever been, and we are so thrilled to be your guide on this journey towards better understanding the world of healing and the many ways individuals find their way to recovery. Well, as our listeners who've been following us know already, in each episode, we sit down with experts, survivors, and advocates in the field of treatment and recovery. We'll unravel the complexities of addiction, mental health, and physical wellness while shedding light on the diverse health and physical wellness issues with diverse therapies, interventions, and approaches available. In today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about family intervention. Well, family intervention in substance use disorder is a vital and structured approach aimed at helping individuals struggling with substance use disorder. And today we'll talk about what family and friends need to know before coming together to express concerns, to set boundaries, and encourage their loved one to seek treatment. Well, you know, Tony, before we get into talking with our panel of experts, I know that this is an issue that is especially close to your heart because you have been doing so much to raise awareness about how families need to work with interventions in ways that move people towards recovery. And your personal lived experience has really informed our overall conversation about recovery. Well, I just think that the family seems to get lost in the shuffle. I just did an event over the weekend, and after I got done speaking and I had performed one of the tracks from the album, a woman had come over to me and she said, hey, listen, my son is acting this way. He's doing this and he's doing that. Do you think he's using? Is is that what he's doing? Do you think he's using? Mm. And I said, well, it's impossible for me to know that unless I speak with your son, but if his his behavior has changed dramatically from what it was, then I would say that there's a good chance that he's self-medicating through through something. And it's just that so many parents and loved ones are unaware. Parents are like, I need to speak to someone that can give me some kind of answers. What am I looking for? What are What are the signs? Where do I go from here? Which is why I think this discussion is vitally important because there are a million questions that family members need to have answered. They just don't know where to go to get the answer. Well, that is the perfect lead-in to our discussion today, because we're going to be talking about some of the things that we need to look for in terms of helping our family members join the recovery path. And with us are Rob Strauber, who's Director of Intervention, Ashley Davis, who is a Family Support Specialist, and VP of Clinical Services, Pete Vernick. Tony, I know that uh, we were just talking about exactly what that mother was asking is, what do we need to know, right? Yeah, we, I mean, people are looking for answers and they're just not getting them. And, and I understand, you know, if someone, God forbid, if someone got shot, the focus of the attention is to stop the bleeding, stop the bleeding. But, you know, there's family members that are looking around. They're like, well, what is the doctor doing? Why are they able to stop the bleeding? Is that my, my loved one going to die? Is like, are they taken to the hospital? They have all of these questions. Unfortunately, there are times where all the concentration needs to go towards the person 
that is in trouble and we forget that not knowing is the worst possible thing that your mind can go through mentally. It's the not knowing, not having any answers. What happens next? Where do we go next? What do we do? And I think that we really need to start concentrating with the same vigor that we use in helping those that are struggling, in helping the families to cope and understand what is going on because they don't. Well, Pete, let's talk about that. Why does someone need an intervention? At what point do you get to intervention is, is really what's called for? And then what does an interventionist actually do? Well, so an intervention in uh, substance use disorder treatment, what it looks like is an opportunity for somebody's family members or friends, other important people in their life to come together and share with them their concern that they've noticed things changing in the person's behavior in their life and that they're going to encourage them to get into treatment. I think that one of the things that a lot of people think about when they can think about an intervention, they think about movies that they've seen, television and the media. It's a bunch of people getting around and, and pointing fingers and accusations and things like that. And, and as we talk about so often, that's not something that's helpful for people. It's not about shame. It's not about this happened right now or I'm not speaking to you again. It could be about setting boundaries and saying that, you know, I can no longer support this pattern of behavior. I can no longer be around you if this is going to continue to happen. But really what it looks like is it's more about expressing concern. It's more about providing support. It's more about communicating with the individual than not. So people get to the point where they want to have an intervention where a person is clearly in need of help, in need of support, but is not open to that on their own. And it just gives people an opportunity to share that information. Rob, as Pete mentioned, we have a certain view of what an intervention is based on all the TV shows intervention and all all the other popular culture that's out there. And I think what Pete said is, is so important because I think we have a certain idea of what intervention means, right? It's to confront the one that we love, you know, one at a time. This is how you hurt me. This is why you need help. But that's really not the way an intervention needs to go, right? No, absolutely not. It should be the exact opposite. And when families have run out of options, when they feel like they've tried everything to help their loved ones, before they give up hope, right, reach out. We need professionals to be able to help guide families through the beginning of their own recovery journey to help the families, so to speak, see the forest through the trees. A certified intervention professional will carefully assess the situation and help the family put together a team of concerned friends and family members to help educate and create new messaging and a new pathway forward, not only for the individual, but also for the family as well. And then utilizing that team's support and the love and concern in a safe and collaborative fashion allows the team to really highlight how important their loved one is and how everyone is embarking on their own recovery journey with them, not against them. Mm. Tony? Well, I have to tell you, the lack of, of that, of what he just said, the lack of being able to have access to doing that brings up one of the things I speak about all the time. You know, the thing I remember most with my son, Tony, was that he truly believed deep inside his heart that everyone that he loved would be better off and their lives would be so much better if he just died. 
Now, he believed that mm. with every fiber of his being because wow. we never knew how to, to communicate to him how important he was and that how much value his life had because those that are struggling you know, with addiction, to me it always boils down to the mental health aspect of, of what someone is going through and what someone doesn't understand or what someone cannot face. But the families do exactly what you had just said. So they get in a room together and they all think that they know what they're doing and they don't because we don't know what we're doing. And if you don't have a professional that is involved in that intervention to kind of orchestrate that intervention, it becomes a blame fest. It becomes a you hurt me. You're no good. Why did you do this to me? And then all it does is compile the guilt that someone is feeling already about themselves so if there's a scenario where you can make someone feel worse than they feel already, do an intervention without a professional there to help you get through it and to guide you and to get it done. You will take a situation that is bad and make it even 10 times worse. Now, don't be under the assumption, uh, under the assumption that even bringing in a professional and doing an intervention that this is the cure-all, that all of a sudden they're going to go, oh, I never saw it that way, and now that I see it that way, I'm good and, and we can do this. No, the secret of this is always patience. The secret of this is never giving up. The secret of this is continue to show love and support because no one, and I mean no one, I don't care if you have the greatest professionals in the world, if you are not ready to receive that help, if you are not open to wanting to get to the root and the issue, you can have all the interventions in the world and nothing will stop. That's why it's important to have a professional to know the right buttons to push, to know the right questions to ask, and to keep people where they need to be so that it is a loving and caring environment that you are dealing with that people can respond. Ashley, Tony brings up such an important point, and that is the importance of having guidance from a professional. And he also brings up another point that I think is, is so powerful and so challenging, and that is that person who is not ready to accept that they need an intervention, they need help. So in the work that you do and, and how you approach someone who's in that position, which can be very powerfully strong, moving them off that, what are some of the things that an interventionist can suggest or support family members in moving that conversation for that person in a way that they will be open mm -hmm. to treatment mm -hmm. and recovery? Yeah, and I think, Tony, you brought up a really good point that when somebody is struggling with substance abuse and you have a family member, they're looking at the bleeding, like, how do I stop the bleeding? How do I stop the bleeding? And so often I think that treatment facilities are focusing directly on the patient. Obviously, that's the, that's the, the most apparent. That is the biggest consequence of using, and I do believe that families get left behind sometimes. And so what my position is is that there is a place for family members to call. And that, yes, while we are addressing the patient, we are addressing their son, their daughter, their mother, their cousin, who, their friend, you know, we're also focusing directly on them. And although their loved one may not be ready to receive services, is that loved one ready to receive services? Because that's, that's the idea, is that eventually 
the goal is to get your loved one to agree to commit to treatment. But like you said, if a person's not willing, they're not ready, you can counsel them, you can pray over them, you can put them in front of a judge, and if they're not ready to stop using, they will not stop using. And I think that a lot of family members, friends, have a hard time accepting that. And so that is really like my goal is to, to work with a family to get them to a place where they can understand that that is a scenario, that it might not happen today. And that's what I see a lot is that family members, like, they need to go today, right now, right mm-hmm. now, I need this fixed right now. Like, right. Right, it's, it's, and I understand, I too have personal lived experience of losing a family member, my, my sure. mother. My mother lost her life to, uh, you know, the disease of addiction and she suffered a fatal overdose. Mm. And yeah, I mean, she, she wasn't, she wasn't ready. And, uh, but I was, that's what has given me the ability to sit here today. And I've been on my own healing journey through that. And that's the goal is that I can provide a pathway for these families to start their own journey towards recovery. Right. It's what you're saying. It sounds like it's so important, not only for the person that you're trying to get into recovery, but for that family member, as Tony and you have indicated, there's this urgency. Mm -hmm. You want them in recovery treatment now, and they may not be at that place yet. So how do you how do you address that? Because the urgency is there. You're you're thinking life or death is Tony. I know you did life or death. You're always thinking life or death. But the reality, the acceptance Mm -hmm. of that is the hardest thing for a family member to accept is the fact that you have no control over that situation. You do not. You can only control the way you react to that situation, what you bring to that situation. But as much as you want the problem to be solved immediately, you're not dealing with a situation. You know, people asked me once, they said to me, Tony, what does addiction look like from a family's point of view? And most people see addiction like this, Mm -hmm. okay? So when they ask me what it looks like, I always do this. And, and they and, go. And for our radio audience. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. So I have my fingers, my thumbs are touching each other. It almost looks like a pair of wings. It's right. not. It's open. But it's wings. It's open. It looks like spider legs, all of these legs. And they look at me and they go, I don't understand. And I go, You think to solve this is you're looking at this one finger when it is all of these, every bit of these things makes up. The one thing that you're looking at. So all of these issues need to be addressed in order to understand and make someone that is suffering understand. I I will tell a very short story, but I think it is very relevant. I was working at one of my locations and a gentleman walked in and he came up to me and he said, I need your help. And I said, how can I help you? He said, I've been to I've been to recovery 12 times. I go to meetings and nothing is helping me. And I just feel like you can make the difference. And I'm like, well, why do you think that I? He's like, I've seen you. I've heard you speak. There's something that you say. There's something about you that makes me want to get help. And I said, okay, well, if that works for you, then I'm, I'm here for you. And then he would be fine. And I had taken him to rehab and everything was great. And he had gone through rehab and then he had relapsed and he had gone through rehab and he had relapsed. And then finally, we, we sat down and I said to him, why are you self-medicating? Why? 
Well, because I'm like, I don't, you're lying to me. I want to know why. Why are you so, and I pushed him and I pushed him and I pushed him and I pushed him to the point where he was so upset with me that he screamed at me, it's my mom. And he had never said that before. And he just unloaded all of the years that he had been holding inside of the issue that he had had with his mom. And he cried. And I said, now, now you can be helped because now you've admitted why you're self-medicating. And that is the first, the first step is understanding why you are doing what you are doing. Why do you need to self-medicate? But you can, you can detox, you can do all of these things until you can get to the root of the reason that someone is self-medicating. It is a hamster wheel. It's a cycle that goes on and on and on, which is why I believe that paramount is the mental health issue of people that are self-medicating. It is, to me, it is the number one focused, even above as controversial again as I tend to be, the mental health issue is paramount even above the sobriety. It is paramount even above the detox. It is the most paramount thing that is possible that you need to address because nothing else works until that is addressed. Pete and Rob, a couple of things that Tony said. Certainly, he was a one-man intervention right here. So, And we see that in this case, uh, it made a difference in this guy's life. When family members are ready to create this intervention, how do they assemble the team? What is the most effective group of people that will come together to make this work in a way that will open up that individual to recovery? What are some of the first steps they need to take? Well, I think in identifying the team, you have to keep in mind the fact that every family, just like every patient is different, every family is different. And there are some people who uh, their family may be the closest to them, and those are the people that they'll listen to. Those are the people that have uh, information or support they want to share with the person. But in some cases, it may be friends, coworkers, other people in their life. Uh, you know, to Tony's example, where this individual mother was one of the uh, things that uh, he had been holding on to for so long, there's a very close family member that maybe, you know, in that moment wouldn't be productive to have be a part of that. So it really, it's going to be different for every person. Rob can talk a little bit about how you would go about selecting and putting that team together. When I speak to families, I ask them, you know, who's important in your loved one's life? And don't leave anybody out, right? Who is concerned for them and who would be concerned if they knew the situation? So often there's so much shame. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of blame, yeah. a lot of guilt, right? stigma that's attached to substance use disorders and, and mental health concerns. So you may have one shot at this. So I say to families, who are we going to pull together that not only can help support your loved one, but also support you through this recovery journey? Yeah. Ashley, I think Rob said something really interesting, which is that not every family member is going to be right to be part of this, right? So there are going to be some family members that are going to be toxic in a situation like that. And there'll be other family members who obviously are going to be open to suggestions and, and guidance and all that sort of thing. So how do you address those family members that want to be a part? They're raring to go. They want to be a part of this intervention. But you know they are not 
supposed to be there? Yeah, so I think um, that's a tough one, yeah. right? And and oftentimes, you know, I when I'm speaking with a family member over the phone, I do gather those individuals, right? And I take a look at the family system and I just gather information. It's not always my role and my responsibility to say who is and who shouldn't be involved. You know, if the family member is expressing to me that the cousin is somebody that is concerned or would be concerned, but then goes on to express that this cousin is also struggling with substances, you know, then I just take that information and I I usually will pass it on to somebody like Rob and ask for some some guidance on that. You know, do we think this individual, does it make sense for them to be there? And and Rob really kind of picks up at that point on how to address the family. So I don't know if you want to kind of touch on that a little bit more. Yeah, it's a bit of a process, right? So after they call in and speak with Ashley, they're going to be sent over to a certified intervention professional their role is to really dive in and understand the family system at a much deeper level, right? And really understand what makes people tick. So Ashley would have found out that possibly the cousin would be a, a person who may not be advantageous to, to have in that intervention. But we're going to ask that, that individual a lot more questions, right? And we may actually invite them to what we call a pre-intervention just so that we can understand what their motivation is for wanting to participate. Is it truly out of love? Is it truly out of concern? Is there an ulterior motive? Is there an opportunity that we may need to help more people like in Ashley's situation where we may have multiple individuals that are suffering with substance use disorder or mental health concerns? So if it fits within you know, everyone who is or would be concerned for the loved one and we can get them to channel that message of love and concern and be specific just to that individual, then there may be some space for that individual to participate. And then, you know, if there are any abnormalities, so to speak, at the actual intervention, then that can be dealt with either real time or actually we get we get letters that we're able to share with those loved ones. And we have an opportunity to actually review those as well. So we, we do have a pretty good sense as to what that individual might be sharing. Tony, something that Rob said and something you've also talked about a lot, which is the denial that often happens in a family, we had you, we talked about the people who are toxic and they want to do this thing, want to do an intervention, but there are also families that don't even want to talk about it. You, in a previous podcast, talked about someone who I think criticized you for saying what your son died of. They didn't want to talk about the fact that it was substance use disorder, right? So yeah. there's a denial factor. There's a lot of secrecy in so many families. Yeah, right? And it was someone very close in the family, and I held no ill will at all. In fact, I sadly, I completely understood why that was because the stigma is so horrific. I've repeated this more than once on the podcast, and I repeat it every time that I speak, that heroin took my son's life, but the stigma is what killed him. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt about that whatsoever. And it was the, a gentleman, the reason I do what I do today wasn't an elderly gentleman had walked into one of my stores because when my son died, it became like almost national news. I mean, it was on every news station, in every magazine, in every newspaper, mm. uh -huh. you know, and I was flooded with people mm -hmm. calling me. And I remember the media calling me, saying to me, Listen, we're just going to say that he passed. Mm. We're, we're not going to say that, you know. 
And in the beginning, you know, I listened to it, and my first thought was, oh, thank God that they have enough respect for me to do that. Then the part of me was like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, well, what? You know, and, and it bothered me. And then an elderly gentleman came into the store, and he said, hey, I just heard on the news that your son had passed away. He said, I just want to tell you I'm very sorry. He said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, no, what is it? And he said, what was it, cancer? And I said, no, he died of a heroin overdose. And he got very angry. And he said to me, why do they do this to us? Why did he do that to you? Why? And I'm listening to him and I'm watching him. And there's a part of me that is is saying that this man is trying to be comforting to me by showing this anger of what happened to me. And then I literally, for that moment, for the first time, I saw the way my son saw the world looking at him. Mm. And I realized that my journey was to obliterate the stigma that was attached to make people understand that this is a mental health and a trauma issue and addiction is nothing except a byproduct of self-medicating those issues. It is not a single thing. We have always treated it as a single thing, as a gunshot wound, which it is not. It is a byproduct of self-medicating that trauma and that mental health. And that's when I knew that I would devote every living second of my life to obliterating the way the world looks at those that are struggling as someone who is ill, as someone who needs to not get clean, but needs to get well. I even despise the word getting clean because to me, it gives me the image of dirty. And none of these people that are struggling are dirty. They are ill and they're suffering with a mental health issue that needs to be addressed above all things because we all, let me tell you something, we all struggle from self-medicating. Every single person in this room, whether it's I need my coffee in the morning or I need to go out and smoke a cigarette or with me, it's I need to eat, I need to eat carbs. So when people grab that self-righteous attitude of, well, I deal with my problems. No, you don't. You smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. You eat yourself to death. You know, you drink a ton of coffee and, and energy drinks. You are self-medicating. You're just self-medicating in a different way. But we all self-medicate. So don't cop a righteous attitude of how much better you are of dealing with situations. You're just not using drugs and alcohol as your means of self-medicating. But you're self-medicating nonetheless. He- Sorry, I get <laughs> <laughs> How do you really feel about that, Tony? Just kidding. Listen, The whole idea of stigma and how that impacts a family's relationship to substance use disorder, it's so powerful. We're really doing our best, and Tony has done such an amazing job raising awareness about how we need to have these discussions and talk about it and and put it out in the open. But denial is very much a part of this, this whole world. Family members, many of them don't want to admit that there's something wrong. So denial, Pete, is obviously a real obstacle for many families. How do you address the denial and and Rob and then Ashley? 
Well, first of all, I think you have to try to understand where the denial is coming from, because uh, it could be, you know, we only see a small part. I think you gave the example of, you know, it looks like this, you know, holding up my hand with uh, making an O, that you see just only a small amount of that person's life. So people may not see the consequences of the actions. They may not see all of the actions. They may not see everything going on with that individual. So denial could just simply be, you know, oh, no, I, I you know, had lunch with them the other day. Everything seemed fine. It could be because of stigma. Of course, it could be not wanting to admit that this is something that can actually happen in my family. This is something that happens to other people. This is something that happens in other families, other communities, not to me and to the people that I love. And part of it could be something that the person themselves is dealing with, that if I admit that uh, I think that this is a problem, then I have to admit that, to your point, what I'm doing is also problematic. You know, we do see families who sometimes will enable that behavior, or they may be the one that a person is drinking with or using drugs with or is involved in that with the person. So many different reasons for denial. So I think that before you can try to address that, you have to understand why is this person denying that this is a problem? Is it that they don't see the whole picture? Is it that they don't want to see the whole picture? What's really going on with them? Right. And denial is definitely a slippery slope, and there can be varying degrees of it throughout the process. So if I were to take a, uh, for instance, and I had a, um, a mom give me a call and start to show those uh, signs of, of denial, I think in some ways the fact that she called is a way that she's reaching out and asking for help, right? And I think a lot of times uh, family members that may be in denial know that there are other family members that know that there's another situation going on. And, you know, it becomes a coping mechanism, right? And one that we need to be able to survive as we go through day by day. And everybody copes and responds differently, right? So it's really important that we bring awareness into the situation. By bringing in the other concerned family members and friends, it's easier to help that family member struggling with denial understand the gravity of the situation. Also, it's easier for them to accept the support that their loved ones are uh, supplying as well, not just for the individual who needs treatment, but the family system as a whole. So just being able to know that, you know, we've got somebody that comes to the table and we're able to bring the larger group together, we can talk through those issues. And oftentimes we, we may have that individual identify and say, yeah, I'm doing those types of behaviors. What do I do? And that's really the platform for us to then be able to build upon that and say, hey, we're just going to keep moving one foot in front of the other. We're going to learn from what has worked. We're going to throw away everything else that hasn't. And we're going to build upon your strengths. Yeah. Ashley, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, there's a couple things that I'll add. And Tony, I, I love your passion, really. I, I feel it. I feel it. And I think language is really important. Another personal experience of mine, I, I had a baby sister who died by suicide. Mm. And to use the word committed was like committing a crime. Mm. You know, like she committed a crime by committing suicide. Mm. So I think, you know, that I, I approach it from, from that angle in speaking with families. I pay close attention to, to the language I'm using, using the words clean, addict, alcoholic. They're very commonly used, but for somebody who is in denial, that may feel very harsh. 
and I think Rob touched on it too, is like identifying the role of the family member who is in denial because you may have a caretaker who is the mother and it feels a little bit like enable. maybe she's enabling, maybe she's not, whatever. But I know for me also when my mother was suffering from substance abuse in her active addiction, the way my mind would protect itself, that I could look at somebody who was a drug addict eating out of trash cans and doing those things like that's what I thought but like not my mom because I had this certain expectation of what a mother was to be so I take a look at the role of the family member what is the expectations that they have um, and, and what is it that they're experiencing that's going against those expectations and address it that way yeah you know they talk about codependency there are people that probably don't even realize right that they're feeding into they're actually subsidizing in a sense that person's addiction by either being in denial or perhaps participating while they are also in substance use disorder. There's a lot of family dynamics, the complexities of that, where people don't probably even realize it, that they might actually be, by their behavior and their words and how they act, actually supporting that addiction, supporting that behavior. And that's the thing that we're trying to break through, right, in in terms of eliminating the stigma, using words in ways that are appropriate as opposed to judgmentally. And back to you, Tony, you talk about when it comes down to it, what is the reason? Why are people self-medicating, getting down to the, the trauma or the emotional issues that have to be addressed? The problem that family members face, there's a lose-lose situation. You know, everyone I speak to, you know, they're looking for an answer. And if I'm going to be absolutely candid, a parent, someone who any loved one is in a lose lose situation. So do I let them stay at my home? Do I give them money to make sure that they don't have to go on the street and do anything that they don't want to do? And then this way they can be at home and then and, and, and I can take care of them. And I go, well, you're enabling them to continue the behavior that they're doing. So that's an absolute truth. Or do I throw them out and do I tell them no longer will I deal with this and they need to go which is another word that I despise is hit rock bottom so they need to go and they need to hit rock bottom and they need to be and I'm like okay well then they can go in the street and they can do something and then they can get killed and they can overdose so you're looking at a family member who's looking for an answer and I'm, and I'm telling them if you do A there's a chance that your loved one is going to die if you do B there's a great chance that your loved one is going to die and then they look at me as if well what are you saying to me are you telling me that there's no hope and then I say to them, all you can do is love them and support them and let them know you will be there. And you have to accept the fact that you cannot live someone else's life for them. You cannot make their decisions for them. You can only make decisions for you. And you have to hope. And if you're a praying person, you have to pray for guidance you have to pray for hope. You have to speak to people and talk to people. And you have to know that it is not under your control. But as long as you tell someone in my eyes, I love you. I'm here for you. When you are hungry, I will feed you. When you need clothes, I will give it to you. When you need shelter, I will find you shelter. But what I will not do is I will not give you money. The saddest thing in the world, I co-wrote a song with a friend of mine called Please don't let me say goodbye. And I have not released that song yet because it is one of the most difficult songs for me to sing. But it is from the perspective of watching someone that you love more than anything 
begging them not to let you watch them die in front of you, but to realize that there's nothing that you can do except love them and tell them that there is always a bridge for them to you. And that is the only control that you have. And also finding the right resources and the right support, whether it's working with the recovery center or working with professionals that can give you the guidance to help the person that you love get on that path. Now, we know so many stories that are ending in tragedy, but we we have some stories that have happy endings, Absolutely. good endings. And I wonder, Rob and, and Ashley, share with us some successes that you've had and really how you got there. Yeah, I, I remember a, a family I've spoken with recently. It was a 19-year-old daughter, and she was the only one advocating for her father, right? And, and um, everybody else, her siblings and her mother, uh, had kind of gotten to the point where they had written this person off. And um, just because of all the behaviors and everything that had just kind of culminated to that point. And so she had called and and uh, wanted to talk through what opportunities exist, you know. And um, we were able to go through her family system and really start to empower her that her words do matter, right? And that she's not alone in all of this. Maybe the thought process for all the other individuals had gotten to the point where they had set their own boundaries, right? So that they can help protect themselves from from this person. But as soon as this daughter had said, you know, hey, guys, I need help. Like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm not ready to let things go. There are things that are left unsaid, right? And that was enough just to motivate the rest of the family system to come together for a phone call so that we can talk through what we need to say, how we need to say it, so that when the intervention happened, there wasn't anything left unsaid, mm -hmm. right? So that individual then can feel like, hey, I've done everything that I can with the knowledge that I have to do to help save my father's life. Mm -hmm. It was it was wonderful, right? I, I get goosebumps when, when families come together and they share this love and this concern with their loved ones. They don't always say yes, right? But they set the seed they then become the mirror, right? Because not only are we asking that loved one to get help, we're also asking the family system to walk their own parallel path, right? Because if not, they can go to all the treatment centers that they will. They can come back out and if they, came, they come back to the same people, places, and things, and home life encompasses all of that, then the likelihood of long-lasting recovery gets diminished. So... We want to set these families up for success. We want to make sure that there's nothing left unsaid. You know, I tell families all the time, you might have one shot at this. And if we have one shot, do we have all the right players? Have we put all the necessary work into this so that we can then share that with our loved ones so that when you walk away, you feel that there's everything that you have been able to do to this point? Wow. Let nothing be left unsaid. I love that. That's that's great advice for all of us in every circumstance of life. Ashley, 
success? I think we have success every single day in my role and in the Mission Center's role at Recovery Centers of America truly. I think that all of us on a certain level are quote unquote intervening in a way because oftentimes I take a look at my teammates who are on the phones with either family members or patients who have no plan which equals no hope and at the end of that phone call there is a plan which equals hope, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think that sometimes it doesn't all happen on that same exact phone call where somebody says yes. But like Rob said, the seed was planted. So if you think about the number of phone calls that we take a day and the number of seeds that are being planted, the nourishment that can come from that alone is a success in my eyes, you know. And I always feel personal reward when I am on a phone call with a family member and I'm able to get through to that family member. And then a double win is when I'm like, hey, is your loved one there? Can I talk to him? And I get on the phone with that individual and we work through some objections and we work through some feelings and we talk about the pain and and I'm able to relate to them and like these phone calls are so important I am rewarded truly every single day Mm. despite some of the things that don't go ideal right right Pete if people want more information about all the resources available at Recovery Centers of America where do they go you can find more information at recoverycentersofamerica.com or call us 24 hours a day seven days a week at 844-25-RECOVERY Tony quick final word Every day that your loved one is breathing is a success. Mm -hmm. It is a battle of inches. It is not not a battle of of feet or miles. It is inches. There is always hope when someone is still alive and someone Mm -hmm. is still breathing. Mm -hmm. Those are the successes of every day. Those small successes are what makes the journey worth taking. Rob Strauber, who's Director of Intervention, Ashley Davis, Family Support Specialist, and VP of Clinical Services, Pete Vernick. Thanks to Rob, Ashley, and Pete in this conversation about family interventions. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill. I'm Tony Luke, Jr. See you next time. 